That is actually the first of four um, videos that we're going to be sharing over the next few um, weeks, and I want you to keep them in mind, because I want you to understand that that is part of the church of Jesus Christ. One of the most successful and colorful players in golf history was Payne Stewart. I shared his story with you several years ago, winner of three major championships. Stewart was both well-liked and well-known, including the way that he dressed on the golf course. You see, typical for him was the Tam O'Shanter cap and knickers, throwbacks to what was customary in years gone by. But you might also be interested to know that Stewart was also known for his faith in Jesus Christ. Here he is clutching the U.S. Open Championship trophy, complete with the ever-fashionable WWJD bracelet. He won that Open Championship at Pinehurst No. 2, right here in North Carolina, in June of 1999. Just a few months later, in October, October 25th of 99, he and five other men boarded a Learjet to fly from Orlando to Dallas. After takeoff, the plane soon veered off course. Attempts to contact the aircraft were met with silence, so two um, Air Force F-15s were scrambled to find out what the world was going on. They found the windows frosted over. The plane had somehow lost cabin pressure. The six men on board no doubt passed out and soon died of lack of oxygen. The plane, however, continued on autopilot until it ran out of fuel and crashed in a field in South Dakota. Same thing happened last September. Another successful man, successful real estate developer, Larry Glazer, and his wife Jane boarded their personal plane in Rochester, New York, to fly to their vacation home in Naples, Florida. Radio contact was lost over Statesville, North Carolina, where the plane was flying at then 25,000 feet. This one sparked an international incident when the plane eventually entered Cuban airspace hours later. Again, two U.S. F-15 fighters and, and later Cuban fighters were scrambled to find frosted windows. They could see through, though, and see Larry slumped over the controls. The plane continued until it ran out of fuel and crashed off the coast of Jamaica. I, I share those stories with you because I believe they illustrate well what may and perhaps has happened in many churches. What may happen in this church if we are not careful. Having enjoyed a measure of, well, success, I suppose we're a larger church now, and we, we may be tempted to put things on autopilot, and sit back and relax. Before you know it, we may be lulled into the sleep of complacency and the status quo, and plow this thing right into the ground. God has been doing some great things at Alliance through the years. We could sit back and enjoy the ride. Keep collecting paychecks all the way to heaven. And I don't believe that that is what God has called us to do. I don't believe that is why He has brought us to this point. I believe that he still has greater things that he wants to do in and through us, but we must actively be obedient to his call and his mission 
for our lives. So with that in mind, as Marcy mentioned, I am going to take uh, a little break from our study in 1 Timothy. Consider this an F-15 flyby, a look at what is going on with us as a church. Uh, you see, I have some questions, three pretty simple questions. Here they are. Have the windows frosted over? Have we fallen asleep? Is there any life inside? I, I think there is. But we must not relax. You see, okay, we are launching into a new capital campaign called Finish Strong. Honestly, just, just lay the cards on the table. It is a campaign to encourage giving so that we can raise the final dollars needed to finish our building out front. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, we started this thing like six years ago. It would be great to finally move in. But I want to remind us what we are building we are building a church, not a pretty building. It is and has always been about the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we need more space. Yeah, we need to finish strong. Yeah, I'd like us to move in. I'd like to preach in that building before I die. But realizing as we do, I want you to understand that it only marks a new beginning for us, new opportunities for the church. I am not interested in the status quo, not interested in just sitting back and relaxing until retirement. I'm not, I'm not even interested in finishing a nice, pretty new building. I am interested in finishing strong so that we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I, I, I am passionate about us being a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, word-saturated church. It's what I want for us. So, so I want us to look closely at the Scripture to, to see what the church actually is, what it is that we're actually building, and, and what is expected of us. Again, I, I have some questions. What is it that makes a church? Huh? What is it that makes a church as compared to, a, let's say, a, a group of people studying the Bible on Tuesday evenings together? Is that the church? It might be, but is there, is, is there more? Well, what is it further that makes a, makes a good church, a certain name on a sign out front? Are we a good church because we have a big group of people who meet here on Sunday mornings? Are we a good church because we have a, a nice new building with stucco? I mean, we don't even have stucco in Boone. We, we do understand, of course, that the church, the church didn't even really have buildings for the first 200 years of its existence. And you do understand, of course, that churches meet around the world wherever they can with or without buildings. Uh, further, is this all there is to the church? Buildings or these Sunday morning gatherings? Is, is, this, is this church? When you drive by here, for example, on Thursday afternoon and say, hey, look, there's the church. Is it? What does the church look like? Because if it's a brick building with a pretty white steeple, we messed up. And is Chuck Colson right when he earlier wrote this, this confusion of church and 
building is no harmless colloquialism. It, it both presupposes and conditions our view of the church, wherein the importance and success of the church is directly measured by the size and grandeur of the structure itself. That's a successful church, really? Then I'm quitting. What are we building? And what is it that we're supposed to be doing anyway? What is our mission? You see, I think there's a great degree of confusion about that today. Again, to quote Colson, what is the church supposed to do? Worship. Some would say it's all about worship or evangelize. Grow, feed the hungry, elect politicians, fight pornography. It's no surprise that non-believers don't really know much about the church's identity or mission, but when Christians themselves are undergoing a widespread identity crisis, then we're in big trouble, and I believe that's true. We don't even know what we're supposed to be about. He goes on rather disturbingly. The hard truth is we have substituted an institutionalized religion for the life-changing dynamic of a living faith. For most of us, the church is the building where we assemble to worship, its ministries. This is the church's ministries and programs that we get involved in. Its mission is to meet the needs of its parishioners, and its servants are the professional clergy who are hired to shepherd us. Yay! Church growth has come to refer more to such things as, here you go, location, marketing, architecture, programs, and headcounts. That's a church. than to the maturity of the body of Christ. It, 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 listen, is that what church is, is for us at, at Alliance? If it is, listen to me very carefully. We are headed for a field in South Dakota. Obviously, I'm going to be answering some of these questions for us at ADF. Certainly, we look a bit different than perhaps the church down the street. And I mean, there are lots of them. You can hit lots of churches with a rock from our property. But, but here's my, are there irreducible minimums to be called a church that makes all of us churches? Are there irreducible minimums? I, I, I think there are. What is it that sets us apart? Now, I want you to think about this just for a minute because I think we're confused. What is it that sets us apart from, you know, fighting porn or abortion in the sex slave trade industry? Is that our mission? Sets us apart for providing clean water and food. Is, is that our mission? Lots of confusion today. And not only that, many, many argue that there is no such thing. I want you to listen very carefully to me. There is no such thing as genuine Christianity apart from the church. Whoa. If that is true, and I believe that it is, then we ought to know what the church is. We ought to know what our mission is. We ought to know what we are actually building. Don't you think? You see, the church is obviously very important in the Scripture. For, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus himself said, I, I, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and what he means is by this, by your confession that I am the Christ, upon this truth that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
Hades will not overpower it. I'm going to build my church. I want you to understand something this morning. This is not my church. It always makes me a little disgruntled when someone says, hey, how's your church? Not my church. By the way, it's not yours either. It's his. Well, how, how is it his? How did he come to own it? Acts 20 says, Paul writes, he's, he's, he or, or says he's, he's, he, he's talking to some Ephesian elders, and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know it's really popular today to bash the church, you know, the one that Jesus purchased with his own blood. That's a pretty high price. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Obviously very important. Many more we can look at. Let me just give you one more. Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he could, would come to have first place in everything. From, from these verses, we understand some very important things about the church. It is his church. He loves his church. You ought to be careful about what we say about it. So much so that he gave himself for it. He paid for it with his own blood. He's the head of the church, and he is building his church church. It's obviously very, very important. So, let's, let's listen to what some others have said about this thing called the church. Some, let's listen to some pastors. One up in D.C., Pastor Mark Dever uh, says, the church is God's vehicle for displaying His glory to His creation. Are you, are you kidding me? It is His, His vehicle, this thing? Is his vehicle for displaying his glory? Here's my question. Is the church doing Is this church doing that? Another past pastor, Ray Stedman, wrote, Nevertheless, despite its many weaknesses, we can focus on them and its tragic sins, like, you know, the Crusades or uh, the Inquisition. The church has been in every century since its inception the most powerful force for good on the face of the earth. Wow. Pastor Bill Hybels up in Chicago says the local church is the, the, local church is the hope of the world. Wow. That is an awesome statement if it's true. Well, Jesus did say to his disciples, the one who would found uh, the church, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Don't know if you noticed, don't have any disciples here anymore, so I'm saying to you, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. I cannot over, overstate the importance of the church of Jesus Christ, and yet do we treat it lightly? Do we treat it merely as this kind of one-hour commitment on Sunday mornings, or is there a little bit more to it than that? Is there something to that Tuesday morning or Thursday morning Ivy or Crusade gathering. So what is the church? We, as I mentioned, we often use the word in different ways. For example, you, you may have said to your kids this morning, it's time to go to church. Right? That's what we say, go to church. Speaking of this Sunday morning service. Or you may look around and say, wow, the church is really full today. They would have said it's really empty this morning in the first service. Or, or as I said earlier, you may have be driving down the 105 bypass and think, hey, there's the church. 
Sometimes the word church is used to speak of a religious authority. It is in the church or speak of clergy. They have, they're the church. There's even a verb form of the church. When a person is disciplined in the church here in the South, sometimes you hear it called, they, they, were, they were churched. Or being churched could simply mean that you go to church. I'm churched. I have a church. I suppose there's nothing wrong with any of those ideas. But what, is this what the New Testament means when it uses the word church? Maybe a definition of the word would help. It comes from, I'm going to go into a little bit more of the Greek than I normally do. It comes from the Greek word ecclesia. If you know Spanish, you know that the word for church is the word what? Iglesia. That's just a transliteration of the Greek word ecclesia. The, the word is a compound of two Greek words, ek, which means out, and kaleo, which means to call. So some of you have no doubt heard that the word church refers to a group of called out ones. You ever heard that before? A group of called out ones, which I suppose is true enough. But the word was actually used before the birth of the church in the book of Acts. It's not like, this is interesting, it's not like the uh, Christianity made up the word. In fact, this is kind of interesting. If you go read the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will find that they called the congregation of Israel, the, con- the assembly of Israel, they called it the church. I'll let you do that study. But it existed before the book of Acts. Most often it was used of of an assembly or a congregation, and it was even translated that way. This tells us something very important about this word church. The church assembles. And now again, it's used of a group of people typically who share some affinity and carry out certain purposes. For example, a sports team could be called, get this, a sports team could actually be called an ecclesia, right? We could agree to deflate some footballs and win the Super Bowl. Um, uh, A merchant, a group of people, a merchant guild could be called an ecclesia. It's a group of people involved in merchandising who band together to further their trade. An illustration of that is found in Acts chapter 19. We've been talking about this in Paul's letter to Timothy in Ephesus. You see, Paul had preached the gospel in the city of Ephesus where the prominent deity at the time was the goddess Artemis. The city merchants, specifically the silversmiths, made quite their living selling these little silver statues of Artemis. When Paul showed up preaching Jesus, the massive conversions to Christianity were having a negative effect a negative effect on the sale of these little silver statuettes. So a silversmith named Demetrius called out a meeting. He called his associates together to determine what to do about Paul and Jesus. And this meeting is actually called an ecclesia in Acts chapter 19. So what you have in this idea of this word church is a gathering of people for a specific purpose. From this, I'm going to suggest that the church of Jesus Christ is a group of ones called out by God from this present evil age to gather the church assembles. That's important. It's very important. I know we're living at a a time where, you know, I can be a Christian, but I don't really need the, the church. I just finished this sermon yesterday, went to Walmart on my way home to pick up a few things, had to change the oil in my car, and and so I, and there I met, I, met, I met a friend, really a good friend who used to come to this church. And so I'm just talking to him, and I said, you used to come to this church. And, you know, he, I just don't really need the church. I just wrote the sermon. Really? 
called to assemble as believers in Jesus for specific purposes. Here's what I want you to understand. We are, from that verse we read earlier, bought it with his own blood. We are blood-bought sinners, redeemed through the work of Christ on his cross to accomplish a mission. Now, we're going to talk about those specific purposes. We're going to talk about our mission next week. But let's talk, I want to talk this morning about us being believers. Believers, okay? Throw that word around. Christians, throw that word around. What is that? Professor Wayne Grudem, uh, in his uh, theology book, defines the church as the community of all true believers for all time. Pastor John MacArthur, in a book about the church, says the church is not, get this, not, we're not building a church, okay? We're building a building. It's not a physical building, but a group of believers, not a denomination, sect, or associate, but a spiritual body. The church is not an organization, but a communion, a fellowship of one body, and it includes all believers. From that, I have often said that the church is not. Let's, put, let's figure out what the church is not to begin with, all right? It is not an organization, although most of us hope that the church is somewhat organized, okay? It is, it is more an organism than an organization. Second, the church is not a denomination, although it may belong, it, it may have some denominations, actually several. This may come as a shock to you, but I, I think there are really actually a lot of good denominations out there. Uh, third, we are not, we are not, let me say this clearly, we are not, it is not a building, although it may or may not meet in one, which means the building, the building is not of paramount importance. It is simply a tool which serves the church. I'll come back to that. Fourth, this is also important, it is not a political action group. Although it does produce change, I do believe that, from the inside out. That speaks to our mission, from the inside out. Which means we are not necessarily, we are not necessarily as a church going to be involved in politics. Okay? Nor are you going to hear me say, Christians are Republicans. Okay? I don't believe that. Last, a, the church is not a religious country club. Some of you have been to churches. It feels that's what it is. It's kind of a country club that you do your little thing and make your contacts on Sunday morning. We are not a religious country club, although social interaction certainly takes place. We call that fellowship. So, please notice. Over and over, we see that the church is made up of believers in Jesus. What does this mean? This is critically important. A believer, or I could say a Christian, is not someone who just attends a Christian gathering on Sunday mornings that we mistakenly call church. In other words, you are not automatically a Christian or a believer because you walk through those doors. This is actually a gathering of the church, but this event is not called church. The church is the people who are believers in Jesus. I looked through the some 77 plus times that the word church is used in the New Testament, and it always, always is referring to people. It is always referring to believers in Jesus. Never one time, not one, this may come as a surprise, never one time in the New Testament does anybody say, let's go to church. Now, as elementary as it may sound, uh, what is it to be a believer in Jesus? I'm going to tell you right now, there's, there's nothing on the planet, there's nothing that I have ever said in 30 years of ministry that is more important than this. What is it to be a believer in Jesus? Just being here does not make you a Christian. 
just being here does not make you part of the church. This is, see, this is the problem. When we call this church, you think, I go to church, so I must be a Christian. No, any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It is believing in Jesus. Believing what? What is it that you must believe? Just You may have your own list, the four spiritual laws, whatever. I have four plus two. I'm just one couple of steps better than crusade, but here we go. Let me reduce it down to the following six things. First, I want you to understand that God created us. He's the creator. He made everything that there is. Created us to be in relationship with him. This relationship was intended to bring him glory bring him glory, and it was intended to bring us greatest joy. In fact, the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why, that's why we were made. That's why you were made. But, second, in our sin, we rebelled against him, every one of us. I don't have to, I don't have to convince you of that. Every one of us, no exception, are sinners. You see, this is Paul's point in Romans 1 to 3. The book of Romans, I'm going to refer to it several times. The book of Romans is Paul's explanation of this, these things that I'm sharing with you right now. In Romans 1 to 3, he, 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 intends to, he intends to bring all of humanity, every single one of us, before the judgment of God and find us guilty such that Romans 3.19, the end of the argument, says that every mouth is stopped and all of the world is guilty before God. Every mouth stopped. You have no defense. Third, our sin has therefore separated us from God. Separated us from God, and as a result, we deserve one thing. We deserve eternal punishment. That's what rebellious subjects get. Fourth, this is very important. Restoration to a right relationship with God was impossible without his intervention. Without his intervention. You see, this is what all of the religions of the world try to do. They try to give you all of the hoops to jump through, all the rules to obey, all the steps that you need to take in order to restore your relationship with God. The problem is you can't do anything. You bring nothing to the table to restore your relationship with God. There's nothing you can do. It would be impossible if he did not do something. Romans 3, again, just a few verses past verse 19. This is what he means when he says, Every one of us sinned and thereby have fallen short of his glory. We've fallen short of what we were intended to do. We can't do it. So number five, he did do something. To restore that relationship, God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, God, a very God in the flesh, to bear our sins in his body on the cross, Second Peter chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, to take the penalty. Jesus took the penalty of our sins. He took our sins on the cross and died in our place, and after dying was raised again the third day, thereby assuring our future resurrection. Romans 6 says it this way, the wages of sin, namely my sin, the wages of my sin is death, meaning um, eternal death, eternal separation from God. That's what I get, but Romans 5, Paul had written, but God demonstrates his love for us. 
in this while we were sinners. Nothing we could do. Christ died for us. So, number six, salvation and forgiveness of sins leading to eternal life in his presence is for all who believe these truths, repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. They are trusting Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. See, John chapter 1 says it this way, but as many as received him, uh, to them, he, he gave the right to become children of God. You were not a child of God, and you became a child of God by trusting or believing in his name. To, to, to believe in his name is to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the very son of God, and that he accomplished what he came to do, to die on the cross for rebellious sinners. He did it. He accomplished that. So if you believe those truths, then you are not only a Christian, but you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, which is why another said, and I really love this, I love this, I love this, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. You don't get in because you give a certain amount of money. I don't care if you give us a million to finish our building. No value. Or because you obey a certain set of rules. Or you uh, do a certain set of actions. You get in simply by believing that you don't belong. And understanding that Jesus has done everything to make it possible for you to belong. To become part. Now, let me, let me clarify something. When I say believe these truths, there's more than just believing facts. Okay? I'm very concerned that we have churches filled with people who believe facts about Jesus, but who have never repented of their own sin and believe that the facts are true for them. We refer to this as personal faith in Jesus. That's what we mean. You've heard that. Do you, have you personally trusted in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, not just for sinners, but for you? And have you asked him to forgive you of your sin and to be your savior? I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that this is what we are building. We are building a church made up of blood-bought sinners who have trusted Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation by grace through faith. That's it. So the church is comprised of all believers in Jesus, but I need to, just, I need to go just a little bit further there. You see, the New Testament uses the term church in a couple of different ways, in both a visible and invisible way, in both a universal and local way. You see, as a community of true believers, only God knows who truly know Him through His Son. And in that sense, the church is invisible. Again, just because you're here, just because you walk through those doors in the back does not, and become part of this assembly, does not make you part of the church. It does not make you a child of God. It does not make you a Christian. It, it, rather, it is those who know Jesus. But it becomes visible in the sense that we as followers of Jesus are gathered here this morning. Again, it's not just this morning. It really does mean those things that take place on Tuesday and Thursday night. But again, we can't make the mistake of thinking that just because people walk through a door that they are in a church. This is the problem. I'm going to church this morning. No, you aren't. 
You're going to a meeting of the church. The question is, are you part of the church? Is both local, so it's visible and visible, is both local and universal. This also is very important. There are, there are times that the scripture speaks of all believers of all time uh, as the church. For, for example, the, some of the verses we read earlier, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's talking about all believers, all time. He gave himself up for the church. And then when we're talking, uh, uh, when, when he says he's the head of the church, I mean, he's the head of all believers, all time. He knows those who are his. But Paul wrote to local churches. He wrote to the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, et cetera, et cetera. He was talking about a local body of believers. In that sense, we can speak of this body of believers here. We can talk about this being a body of believers at Alliance or one across the street at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. All local churches together comprise the universal church. Now listen to me very carefully. The New Testament expects that believers who are part of the universal church, be involved in a local church. This is what I meant when I I said earlier, there is no genuine Christianity apart from the church. Universal, local. Here's my point. It is critical to belong or to be part of a local church or a local assembly of believers of assembled ones. While it is enough for you, maybe... uh, Yes, it is. Well, it is enough for you to go to heaven, to be part of the universal church, be a believer in Jesus. It is not enough for your growth to belong to the universal church and to ignore the local church. I don't care how popular that is today. In fact, I would say this. The local church, the local church is the plan of God to bring the hope of Jesus to the world. I would even go further and say that to be a believer and not engaged in a local church is to be in active disobedience. It defies the very meaning of the word assembly. And you cannot fulfill your biblical responsibilities outside the church. You can't, you can't do that. That's why Hebrews 10, the author writes, let us consider how to stimulate one another. You can't do that just mindlessly wandering around. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling, notice the word, Together, as is the habit of some, some are already doing it in New Testament times. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. So with that said, let me say this as it relates to the local church. There seems to be a growing movement of, I'll call it freedom. Freedom of choice. Which I believe this freedom prevents commitment and growth. What do I mean? It seems... Today, people are becoming more comfortable floating in and out of church. So it doesn't matter whether I'm in one or not. Or floating from local church to local church. We're all part of the body of Christ, and so there is no commitment to a local body of believers in which you serve. That, I believe, leads to a consumer mindset. You just kind of go from place to place where I get what I want. Consumer mindset where you go to receive rather than to serve, and it keeps the church from the church from growing together in relationship and community and accountability, all necessary for personal growth and truth and holiness. So I'm going to say to you right now, listen very carefully to me. Find a church, commit and serve. Quit floating. 
It is time that the church stop rearranging the saints. We have way too many evangelical options today. Well, you know that I'm committed to this church, and one of my purposes today is to elevate the importance of the local church. I want to remind you what we are actually building. Let me share one, share one final thought with you very quickly. In the time of the Reformation, some consistencies concerning the understanding of the local church began to develop. See, before the Reformation, before 1517, you understand that there were basically two churches. I know there were some splinters, but there were basically two churches. There was the Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Orthodox Church in the East, divided 1054. We don't get into that. They both, however, claimed to be the true church. They both claim to be the true body of believers because, this is important because, because they could trace their succession, their history, back to the apostles. Some, they call this apostolic succession. We, they said, are the true church because our authority has been handed down from Peter to successive leadership to the present day. The reformers, however, reformers, 16th century, 1500s, came along and said, no, 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 no. The true church really has nothing to do with succession of leadership, with authority lying in some supposed connection with the apostles. Rather, the true church is found in the following. I want you to get this. This is really important. It is built on the truth of the gospel found in the word of God and the proper administration of the ordinances of the church. That is the church. For example, the Augsburg Confession of 1530, which was written for the Lutheran branch of the church, defined the church as the congregation of saints, that's believers, in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments, that's the ordinances, are rightly administered. You see this. You have the idea of teaching the gospel rightly found in the Word of God and the proper administration of the ordinances, namely there are two, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. However you choose to do that, Lord's Supper and Baptism. John Calvin, another leading reformer, said basically the same thing. Wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is, it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. Amen. That is the church. Gospel rightly taught, the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper rightly observed. See, that's spelled out, by the way, in Acts chapter 2 and when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, there we read that the church committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to prayer. And we read that 3,000 people were saved by believing these truths and baptized the same day. This, this speaks to our mission next week. Sums up well what makes a true and healthy church. Now, do you understand something as important as our building is? And I'm going to be talking about it. It is simply a tool that supports the church. That's why I'm excited about finishing it, because I believe it will serve us well. I want you to understand that it spells a new beginning for the church to continue with its mission. I'm excited about what God is doing, because I believe he has done some great things in our church. He will continue to do great things. Listen to me. If we do not fall asleep, sit back and relax. But we faithfully follow him wherever he leads us. Let's stand and pray.